0: You are listening to Scattered by Anchored Baptist Church, where we are working to reflect the diversity of Hermanus as we gather to hear good news and as we scatter to share it. Thus far in Jesus' life, we have seen him born, Uh, we've heard him teach and preach the religious leaders as a 12-year-old, and we've seen him baptized. In Luke's gospel, the next thing that we should be looking forward to is his, for lack of better terms, mic drop reading of Isaiah chapter 61, when he not only declares God's word to God's people, but he then goes on to say, I'm the one that's doing that, but we're not there yet. We'll get there next week. Because there is another event in Jesus' life that we don't want to just pass over. And that is the water being turned into wine. A miracle and a sign whose meaning is both very deep and very rich and very rooted in the Old Testament and also God's promises to us throughout the New Testament. So let me go ahead and read for us from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples When the wine ran out the mother of Jesus said to him They have no wine and Jesus said to her Woman what does that have to do with me My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding anywhere from 100 to 136 liters. Okay. Okay. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn it knew, drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first when people have already drunk freely and then pour wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples Believed in him. Here's our focus for this morning. Here's our, our big idea. Whoops, not that. Jesus delivers himself in abundance to those who are in need of him. Jesus delivers himself, gives himself over in abundance, in greatness to those who are in need of him. And that includes you. Let me go ahead and pray for us, though, before we go any further. Almighty God, Your Son, our Savior, is the light of the whole world. And we pray this morning, Father, that You would cast that light on us all through Your Word, both preached and pictured to us. And we ask, God, that Your Holy Spirit would be working in and through that same Word this morning to bring this proclaimed good news to life in each of us. God, we ask that that light will not only shine on us, but radiate from us too, so that little by little, your Gospel will go out to the ends of the earth, as you've promised. And we pray this through Jesus Christ our Lord, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, now and forever. Amen. Now this is hard. We're jumping right into a different Gospel this week. which makes this first statement from what's happening from John kind of confusing on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. There's actually a lot of significance to this third day. Um, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds because there's an argument. There's an argument about whether this is six days after Jesus' baptism or seven days after Jesus' baptism. And I actually don't care about that argument. What I do care about, though, is there's a bit of significance to this third day. Long story short, this is the sixth day after an event. Three plus three equals six. And there was another three days right before this, and this is the sixth day. And do you know what happened on the sixth day in creation? There was a wedding. God created man and woman, and there was a wedding. And this is exactly what we get to see happen in John's Gospel today. A wedding is taking place. God is once again blessing marriage. Specifically, Jesus is doing that through arriving at a party and bringing good gifts to the bridegroom and his bride and all of the people in their Their wedding parties. I I love it here that Jesus' mother is invited to the party, and then Jesus is invited, and his disciples. Now, I don't know about you... But if the traveling like frat house or like group of guys that is walking down the road and they're dusty and filthy, it's one thing to have to invite the son because you invited the mother, but it's another thing to have to invite the 12 people that are following the son around. Would you agree with that? It seems like maybe, um, these, this Jewish wedding thing is a lot bigger than I could have imagined. I know that I's wedding, we were on a very strict budget and that very strict budget meant that, you know, you had to watch how many brownies you were eating, okay? You could only have so many cookies and so many pieces of fruit, okay? That's just the way that it was, but it doesn't seem to be the case here. It seems like a wedding is a celebratory event where everyone is partying pretty hard. Okay. And this is also evidence for us in the text when it says that the wine ran out. I don't know how much wine they had, but I presume that this bridegroom, and we're going to see here in just a minute that that's whose responsibility it is to provide the wine for the wedding. This is not only tradition speaking, but this is like we see here at the bottom of the text What does this lead servant do when he figures out that there's new wine and it's better than the wine that came before it? He calls out to the bridegroom, kind of like this, what are you doing? What kind of person are you? What kind of twisted person are you that this is the way that you're operating? Don't you know that I'm the caterer here? I'm in charge of this event and you've totally messed up the scheme that we operate off of. Well, the bridegroom is responsible for providing the wine at the wedding. And this wedding could take place anywhere between seven days and 14 days. It would be really usually until the wine ran out. And it seems like the wine has run out, right? Maybe the parties ended a little too soon. Um, why is wine so important? Well, I don't know what it was like in your family or in your culture, uh, but I do know this that for me, if a wedding does not involve a good cake, it's like it never happened, okay? I remember my aunt's wedding from when I was seven years old, not because it was a Catholic wedding and the service was like three and a half hours long, okay? That's more nightmarish, but I remember that the cake. Was excellent at the wedding. Okay, for me, the cake is very important, and for the Jews, um, this would not be a proper wedding without an abundance of wine. Why? Well, going all the way back to Genesis chapter forty-nine, and then as I'm, you know, I'm going to read today from Isaiah chapter twenty-five. This is a sign of God's blessing on things amongst God's first people. If there is an abundance of wine, that means there is an abundance of harvest, which means God is blessing. So there needs to be a richness to this feast and to the wine to show the people in attendance that God is blessing what's happening. here. But when that blessing runs out, well... It's not reflecting very well on the bridegroom. And it's not reflecting very well on anyone else that's there either, right? What kind of party did I get into that there's not enough wine for me and for everyone else? So what happens? When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, Uh, I do remember that my brother jokingly would call my mother woman sometimes and that he would get a stern look from my father. This is not typically common practice, right? Well, don't take this as an offense, all mothers in the room, at what Jesus is saying to his mother. He's rebuking her a little bit, but he's not rebuking her as strongly as what it might sound. He's not rebuking her because she's wrong necessarily. In fact, Jesus is going to use this term woman uh, pretty much whenever He's speaking to a female in the text. So when He stops the religious leaders from stoning a woman, she's called woman. When He talks to the Syrophoenician woman, she is called woman. Uh, Why just this term woman? It's actually uh, culturally respectful to not be giving a playful name to someone. Okay? (laughs) Okay? This is commenting who this person is, who God created them to be. Now, wouldn't it be more respectful, though, for him to call her mother? But he doesn't. Why? We don't actually know why he doesn't call her mother. I I do have an idea about why he might not call her mother. And that is, look, we've already seen Jesus has been an obedient son. When he was 12 years old and his parents reprimanded him, for staying behind and, and, and hanging out at the temple and talking to the religious leaders, He respectfully went with them when they requested. Right? We see that He is living up to His vocation as Son under the law. And yet here, we're about to see Jesus not working under His calling as Son, but rather working under His calling as Messiah as Savior, as God Himself. And so this might be why there's a little bit of a rebuke. Also, in all those other instances that Jesus says to someone, woman, uh, especially the Syrophoenician woman, if anything, that one is by far the most offensive, and yet at the same time, He does it for a reason. He's trying to draw something out of her. Just like Jesus does any time that He's teaching sharing a story, working miracles. He wants a good confession to come out of someone. So this is exactly what he's doing to his own mother. Why is this my problem? And he wants her to say why it's his problem. (laughs) Because he can do something about it. Because she knows that he can. Jesus... Uh, And so, uh, when she said to Jesus, they have no wine, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. What's Jesus saying to her? Okay, I I hear what you're saying, but it's not time for that confession. Not yet. It's not the time for me to start pulling out miracles left and right. That's going to come next, okay? And yet, he's, He's going to His mother stopped speaking to him. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Um, Now, this is interesting language, actually. I don't want to get too nerdy about it, but uh, you might remember language like this being used in the past. Uh, Do you remember when Joseph was, after he'd been sold into slavery, and he was in Egypt, and no one had a good idea about how to work up towards the seven years of famine that were going to come. Well, Pharaoh put his trust in Joseph. And what did Pharaoh say to all the other servants? He said, do whatever this man tells you. It's really a confession of trust in the person that's standing there. So what kind of confession does Jesus provoke from his mother? It's confession of trust. And she says what any of us should be saying. Whatever Jesus tells you to do, just do it. (laughs) Whatever he tells you to do, do it. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the rites of purification. Each one holding anywhere between 100 and 136 liters. That's a lot of liquid. I can't actually put my brain around six of those. Um, why is there a difference? Do we not know how much they held? Well, there's are stone jars. Stones come in different sizes. Okay, they're all going to be different shapes and sizes. And um, needless to say, we've got like bathtubs of water that need to get collected here by these servants. And they do that. They fill up these stone jars up to the top. What are these Jewish rites of purification? Um, Okay, any rites of purification, whether it meant the washing of the body, the washing of the hands, but why would we need these gigantic stone jars? Um, Because it's a wedding, and there's lots of dishes that need to get done, and there's lots of people that need to get washed. Uh, In between courses, and in between meals, and in between days of the celebration, people are going to get messy, and we need to have enough water to wash them all. And so that's what these jars are going to be used for. Now, I want to make a note real quick. When we have an expectation placed upon us, like you're going to provide all the wine for the wedding. Do you know what I like to call this? Law, okay? It's a good law. I like it. I'll take it. And yet, what about these these jars of ritual ritual purification? Well, if that's not law, I don't know what is. And we're going to see Jesus start something here that we're going to consistently see him do throughout all of the gospel accounts. And that is, he's going to be taking the law and he's going to be using it to produce something other than lawful obedience all the time. He's actually going to be producing the obedience in and of himself He's fulfilling the law. And as he's doing that, what is he going to be doing for us? He's going to be producing good news on the other side of it. Let's keep going. And he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, how did this happen? We don't know. We don't get any words about did Jesus have to Speak over the jars, the jars magically turn red, or what happened? Okay, here's the deal. Jesus is the Word. He is the Word made flesh. The very presence of the Word, this water, turns to wine. That's our best guess as to how the mechanics of this work. And frankly, that's all that we need to know. Because every other thing that Jesus does as far as miracles are concerned, when He takes mud and rubs it on someone's face (laughs) to get their eyes working, when He takes His spit and wipes it on someone else's tongue, I mean, this is weird and gross. Right? And yet, this miracle here is something beautiful too because it's Jesus taking the things that He created, And he's using them for his own purposes. And just in case you don't know the definition of a miracle, here it is. God working outside of the laws of nature that he set up to produce what it is that he wants. That's the definition of a miracle. We don't know how it happens. But we know that through God's word, specifically Jesus himself, A miracle is being worked. And it's being done through physical means. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, So who's this master of the feast? Yeah, he's kind of like the caterer. Maybe he actually was the lead servant of the household, or he's someone that's hired out to come in and make a wedding go smoothly. I don't know what the circumstance is here in this household. All of those are possible options. But needless to say, he's out there making sure that people are getting served. He's like the head waiter at a restaurant, right? Making sure that everyone is getting served and everyone's needs are being met. So he does not he's not back there in the kitchen slogging it out, doing the purification rituals on the dishes, or any other thing. He's out there making sure people are getting served. And so it's a surprise to him, because he doesn't know what's happened when new wine is brought out. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, although the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. So what is he saying? No coded language. Um, When everyone's drunk a little too much, then we start giving them cheaper wine. It's going to be watered down. It's not going to be aged as well. So on and so forth. And you know what? They're not even going to notice. Their senses are dulled now and the party's going to continue, and everyone's going to be happy, chappy. We're good to go. Right? But now he's confused. He's confused. He says, wait, wait a second. Did I just serve the bad wine first? This is bad on my reputation. And you know what? Bridegroom... It should be bad on yours, too. I can't believe that you're mixing things up like this. There is a code. There is a law that we follow. We do it this way, and that's the way that we've always done it. That's the way we're always going to do it. And do you know what Jesus says to that? He says, "Mm, no, I do it a different way. In the midst of this, even though this lead servant doesn't know it, Jesus is saying, the old, the, 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 the new wine, the watered-down wine, that's what everyone was receiving beforehand. But now I'm here. And when I'm here, the good wine, the plentiful wine, the rich wine, that's going to be what's handed out. That's what comes in the end, is the good wine. The blessing of God. But you have kept the good wine until now. And then verse 11, This is the first of His signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested His glory. And His disciples believed in Him. Isn't that funny, right? I mean, typically when Jesus is preaching good news, everyone's like, wait a second. Hold on. Sorry, you're the Messiah? You're claiming to be the Messiah. But he gives everyone wine, and they're like, "We believe." <laughs> it's, a, it's kind of a funny circumstance that John relays to us here. Um, and yet people, his disciples, his mother, these servants, they saw what was happening, and they knew to them they knew, that's not normal. Water doesn't just turn to wine, right? You don't just use these purification jars. these are for the law. And yet, somehow, this man that's standing in front of us is using these things as a blessing to us. He's giving us good gifts. In fact, in some ways, even though there's no promise attached to this wine, he's giving them good news in a way. Because he's giving himself to them. He's telling them who he is. In Isaiah chapter 25, we read this. Uh, and sorry, just before this, uh, I think chapter 23 going into 24, we read um, the things that have happened, the judgments that have come upon God's people, and how the harvest is low. The wine is non-existent. Nothing good is being produced. But, when God promises to bless His people, to bring salvation. This is the picture that Isaiah gives to us. Um, I'll start reading from verse 1 just because it's beautiful. Uh, But then we will focus in starting on verse 6. O oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. Plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong people will glorify you. Cities of the ruthless nations will fear you, for you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. Here we have God reversing the fortunes of His people. It's been uh, desolate like we read before, right? It's been sorrow before this. It's been accursed before this. And now things are turning around. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of what? Well-aged wine. Of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And that's not the only good news. People know that well-aged, fine, rich wine is a blessing from God. And it's not only a blessing in the moment, but it is the promise of future blessing attached to it. What else is going to happen when this blessing comes true? And He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. That passage goes on to talk about God's salvation coming. So here, what seems like just a fun miracle that Jesus is doing, those around Him that know what's happening know this for something much greater than just a simple miracle related to food. The reason why Jesus had to say, my time has not yet come, is because this sign, this miracle that He is doing, is clearly a sign of who He is. And it is the beginning of the promise that He is going to make. That same promise that was made back in Isaiah 25. That death would be swallowed up forever. And that salvation would be brought to God's people. And I love how Jesus does this here too. Look, um, I know that if... I were the bridegroom again at a wedding and it was the responsibility of of me to be providing the food and I had run out. If someone else were to step in for me and to fill up the plates and the tables and to bring the good cake back, (laughs) I would feel infinitely blessed by that. Right? That's exactly what Jesus has done. This bridegroom who didn't know the kinds of drunks that He was dealing with. (laughs) This bridegroom who ran out of wine. Right? Jesus steps in on His behalf as the bridegroom. And He blesses that wedding feast with wine. Christian, for you and I, this is a beautiful picture of who Jesus promises to be for us. He promises to be that bridegroom to us who provides for and takes care of us. Jesus, in this miracle, delivers Himself in abundance to those who are in need. And He does that for you. The way that this promise from Isaiah is going to be fulfilled is Jesus going to the cross and dying your death for you. Taking your sin upon Himself. Swallowing up that sin and death forever. So that the feast that He's providing for you as the bridegroom, at that final feast that we look forward to, that marriage supper of the Lamb, where we finally get to celebrate with Jesus, the Bridegroom, in His presence forever. Eating those rich foods, eating, drinking those rich wines. It's a beautiful picture of God's never-ending blessing to us. He does that first by going to the cross for you and giving Himself to you in abundance. Until next time, know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit is with you all.